Hi, Stefan. Hi, Marin. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Thomas. How are you? Very Thomas, good. You Excellent. Listen, why don't we start from the beginning so that I can um, get to know you? Because obviously I haven't spoken to you before this. Uh, Cameron was uh, nice enough to introduce you. He, he told me that you were very inspiring. And as you know, what we try and do with our podcast is to talk about ordinary people achieving extraordinary things. And I think that that is your story. Oh, thanks very much, Thomas. Cameron pretty kind and it's uh, <laughs> an honor for us to be on your podcast. So thanks uh, it's, for v- us. it's very hard for him to be kind, don't you worry. Listen, I, I just want to start. Your story starts from South Africa, correct? Zimbabwe, actually. Well, my wife, Maren, she's from South Africa, but I'm actually from Zimbabwe. Yes, okay. Uh, so do, would you like to start at the beginning? I mean, how did the two of you meet? So we both went to university. Um, yep. I went to university in South Africa. Uh, we met after university at a company called IBM, a computer company. Yes. We then moved to the UK, worked there for four and a half years. But married in between. So when did you move to the UK? Moved to the UK early 1992. 1992, yeah, okay. The 92 to midway through 95, we spent in the UK. Um, I worked for Credit Suisse and Mobile. Yes. And Marl also worked for Mobile on the marketing side. Right. And then we moved back to Zimbabwe. We leased the farm for three years. So how, how does it work, leasing a farm in Zimbabwe? How does it work? So you just landed from England. Obviously, you from Zimbabwe, that gave you the right to lease a farm, obviously. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. How one goes about leasing a farm? Pretty much just like you'd rent a property here in Australia. Oh, okay, right. Same sort of thing. You've got an owner of a property, he's not using it personally, and he just wants to rent it out to a younger person. Yes. What about all the equipment? Some of the farms come with the equipment. Yes. And then, obviously, your lease rate could just be higher. Bit like um, renting a furnished apartment, for example, versus an unfurnished one. Yes. So you could lease a farm with the equipment or without. We leased one basically with no equipment whatsoever. How big was the farm? The farm was approximately 2,000 acres, so about 1,000 hectares. Okay. Fortunately, Stephen had a really kind dad who lent us all his extremely old equipment. So we started off with all the leftover stuff on his farm was, was what we started off and began our journey of farming. So I'm trying to understand this, okay, because I'm struggling with that already. We have here two people who studied at university who are in computing. And yep. yes, I understand you've got a bit of background in farming, but then what about Marin? I mean, she'd be saying, hold on, you can go back to the farm, but I'll keep on doing whatever I'm doing. Exactly right. Um, <laughs> neither of us had the intention to ever go farming. I wasn't really the, the farmer of the family. You know, we came back from the UK and we actually bought an apartment in Johannesburg. Our idea was to go and settle in Joburg. But a friend of ours was getting married in Zimbabwe and we decided, well, we've been away from home and from seeing all our friends for about four years. Yes. Why don't we go up for the wedding and we'll just spend a, you know, a month there visiting everyone and saying hi to everyone. Yes. And the end result of that was that we saw the lifestyle that they were all living and them, it was in the good days of them. 95 was probably one of the most successful years and the most, you know, exciting years in Zimbabwe and I just looked at this and I thought, man, this, this could be a really, really good lifestyle that we could live here. Okay. And Stephen was thinking the same thing, but neither of us would actually tell each other that maybe we could do this. Yes. So on the way back from the wedding, we started talking. And yes, by the time we got back to Pope's farm, 
we decided that we were going to stay and that we wanted to start making a living there. Okay. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. I mean, for me especially, you know, going from first world living to third world living is quite a big step and it takes a lot to get used to. So I definitely wouldn't say it was an easy transition for me. For Stephen, it was fine, but yeah, it was a little bit harder for me. Right. So I just want to ask you about lifestyle. What is it that you are looking for in the lifestyle? Time. I think the biggest thing, you know, we've just spent four years in London where you get up in the morning in the dark, you get on an underground or you get on the bus, you go to work, you come back, it's dark. I started actually another side business while we were in London, like my own little beauty salon from home. So I would come back from work, then at night time I would do that. And it was just, it was time. It was the biggest thing for me was I just saw how much more time people had and I suppose because of the labor being cheaper in Africa, yes. um, you could actually employ people and you can actually buy your time back. So for me, the biggest thing was time. Okay, that's great. Now, by that time, did you have any children then? Because I know you have three children, uh, yes? Our oldest was only born in 97. So no, we didn't have any kids. Okay, so what were you growing on the farm? Oh, there was a variety of things. Zimbabwe is well known for tobacco production. Yes. That was tobacco, uh, corn. Right. which is a staple food. They call it maize. Uh, we did paprika and we did beef cattle. Okay. Predominantly, those are the main things, yeah. Okay, so Marin, if I may ask you, what was the hardest thing for you in those first few years? I think, one, the language barrier. You know, I didn't speak Shona, which is the main language that everyone is speaking. So I think for me, that was the one thing. And two, of course, even though I'm an immigrant in Australia, but I was also an immigrant in Zimbabwe, you know. Yes. Um, I was from South Africa, so again, I was the odd one out. So it's always a little bit harder to get accepted everywhere. <laughs> and just the fact that it was third world. The farm was in the middle of pretty much nowhere. Our closest town was probably 30 kilometers, and that was just a tiny little town. Our bigger town was probably 80, 90 kilometers away from us, you know. So you're very isolated. Wow. And I was just getting used to kind of, it's a whole new life, you know, it's a whole new lifestyle. And that's when I got really involved into the community. Yes. Because, I mean, it was just such a new place for me to go to. I, I hadn't any idea of what I wanted to do. Yes. So I just kind of got involved with the community. Um, Stephen's dad started the golf club many years prior to that. And I just got onto the committee for the golf club. I got onto the committee for the old age home in our little town. Um, I just got involved with the church. I, I just kind of got involved everywhere that I could just to stay busy because I'm not the type of person to sit around and do nothing. Yes. Um, yeah, and I mean, I suppose that was the really good thing because once you get involved with everyone, you know, people get to know you, you get to know everyone and so we could start making a difference. Okay, so, so after three years, you obviously thought uh, this is fantastic because you guys decided to buy a farm. Uh, did you buy that farm or a different farm? We bought a different farm. Okay. At the time, like Marin was saying, Zimbabwe was actually booming. Yes. Agriculture and industry was really booming at that time in the mid-90s. So there was very little land available to purchase. Yes. So we were fortunate about probably 70 or 80 kilometers from where we were leasing. Yes. Somebody was selling a farm. And um, it was so the we, same thing? There was the same tobacco and paprika and same kind of correct. plantations? Okay. Yeah. So in that sort of region, the farms are pretty much similar sort of size pretty much doing similar sort of things, yeah. Okay. So you bought the farm. After a few years, things started to turn. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wish it was a few years, but it wasn't. It was a couple of months. No um, way. Yeah, that's just how quickly everything changed in the country. So we actually moved onto our farm 
in October of 99. Yes. And I still remember that day we got on the farm. There's this huge rock right in front of the house, and I stood on it, and you can look out onto the farm. And I said to Stephen, oh, I just love this. I said, this, this is where we're going to die. We're yes. going to live here for the rest of our lives. And less than six months later, yes. we got invaded with the illegal land occupation. So, Didn't you know from the politics that maybe things could turn? Look, I think there's always in any third world environment, Yes, there's always been rumbling you know, in the background right, right. For, <laughs> for many, many years. But I think it was sudden and dramatic that got out of control. Pretty I think quickly. the reason what happened was that the government of the day had been in power for a very long time at that stage. Yes. And there's never, ever been any opposition in the country. There was never any other political parties. Yes. From about October, November, they called this referendum because there was a new guy that wanted to start a new party. And in this referendum, the other guy won. That's kind of why it all happened so quickly, because that's when they realized, okay, if we want to stay in power, we need to do some drastic stuff. And that's basically how the land occupation started. Okay. So let's take you back to the nightmare now. So six months after that, what's happened now? You're in the middle of your farm. You're still going about your business. What's going on? So we've got crops in the ground. We've got animals tend to, we probably had 80 people working for us, you know, with their families. Yep. So responsibility for them for jobs and food and medical and so forth and so forth. Yep. What happened then was people came onto the farm and started constructing houses on our land and between our fields and crops and so on. Yeah, there was just a lot of intimidation, dismembering of animals, killing of animals. Oh my chopping God. Down, yeah. yeah, chopping down of actual crops itself. So you can just imagine owning your house and then 20 people come and occupy you know, a couple come of the bathrooms, a couple of the rooms at the same time as you. It's not going to work out too well. Okay, let, let, let me but ask you as someone who's stupid here now, what, what's happening with the law enforcement then? Well, there was no law enforcement because the police and the army were under strict instruction that it was political. Right. And they weren't really to get involved. So... You didn't have any recourse to the law, unfortunately. So there was a breakdown of civil obedience and law as we know it and property law as we know it. Yes. So there wasn't much you could do. The best we could do was we used to, you know, on a daily basis, speak to the local politicians, our local MP. Yep. There was a lands committee, try and speak to people like that, try and maintain some sort of semblance of order. And also to try and find out what was happening. You know, I think most people thought it was just a temporary thing that was going to blow over quickly. Yeah. Uh, little did we realize that the agenda was actually just to cleanse the land. I've watched a little bit of your video. So you said you've been ejected. Can, can you just tell me in a few words what happened that day? Yeah, what ultimately happened was a couple of years went by with you know, these people on the land and whatever and being a, a bit of a nuisance. Yes. The government had issued what they call Section 8 and Section 5, which basically somebody would deliver you this letter to say you had 90 days to vacate your land. Yes. Irrespective of whether you have crops or animals or so forth. But because there was no law and order, most people just carry on. I mean, how do you, you've got a multi-million dollar crop in the ground and you've got hundreds and hundreds of animals feeding. I mean, what do you do with it? What do you do with all those animals? What do you do with all the people that are working for you? If everybody's in the same situation, you know, it's like having just sellers and there's no buyers on the other end. What do you do? Yep. So most of us just try to carry on farming and living as best we could. Yeah. But eventually they came and they arrested me. 
and there was actually two farmers at the time that was arrested at the same time, and they got arrested for occupying their own land. That's basically what happened. And then there was a court case a, a day or two later where another farmer who had been arrested earlier, yeah. the court case actually voted for him that no person can be put out of their home. Because, you know, when you vacate your farm, obviously our home is on the farm. Yeah. So it's not that your business is separate from where you're living. Mm -hmm. So that's how we actually ended up getting back onto the farm that we could live in the house. That took a while. I mean, yeah. basically what station, they had prearranged the magistrates in a little room, bundle us in there. We had no right to any, you know, legal representation. Yeah. We were just pushed before the magistrate. Magistrate said you've made your 90-day welcome on your own property. You're basically not allowed to go back onto the land. Yes. Um, I asked permission to go back to get my passport and clothes, and my wife and three kids at the time were on the land. Um, he refused. He said, if you step foot on, basically, it's immediate two years um, imprisonment. So, obviously, I didn't want that. So, no. I just phoned Maren and just said to her, she needs to get as much of our belongings together as possible and uh, just get off the farm as quickly as she could. Okay. So, she just put out a radio message to all the local farmers that hadn't been affected as badly. Some of them came along with their trucks and then she basically just loaded our household goods. Couldn't take much more than that. In about two or three hours, they just loaded the household goods onto the truck and just drove off the farm. Okay. What after that? Then we had a case that we were living now off the farm. I was fortunate my farm was actually on the main road. So what I would do daily was just go and park on the main road and then my manager and my head personnel would just walk out from the farm just to the main road because technically I wasn't on the land. Yes. And then I'd just give them instructions because, you know, you still have to fertilize and put chemicals on and water and tend to the animals and do all the usual farming activities. So fortunately, I had a really good crew that um, maintained sort of stability while we were off the farm. Yep. And then every Tuesday, they would parade us in front of the magistrate and he would just deny access back to the farm. I think that went on for seven or eight weeks. Yes. And then probably about the sixth or seventh week, I just had enough of this. I just thought, you know, I'd done the right thing. We got this letter from the government to say they weren't interested in that land. And there was an advert in the newspaper, immigrate to Australia in the local business magazine. And I looked at this and I phoned the guy. And just by coincidence, he happened to be in the major city, Arari, the, the very next morning. Phoned him, I said, what do I need? Gave me a whole list of stuff that I needed. So we drove up the next morning and just put in our application to Australia. And then basically forgot about that. Went back to the usual weekly court appearance. Yep. And then the one morning when we walked in there, it was illegal to put us out of our home. They can boot us off the land, but not out of our home. But our home is on the land. So then he said, oh, well, now you're allowed to go back to your home. <laughs> so... We went back to the home, but we didn't take anything with us. We took the very bare essentials. Yes. Like, as in nothing. We took nothing with us. Just a bed, basically. In, in case they changed their mind, right? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. because, because there was such chaos, and no one really knew what was going on. Different political factions, you know, against each other. Some were, look, this is right, this is wrong. Some was, no, the government's too soft. No, the government's too hard. Yeah. So it was real chaos at the time. So we just thought, well, we're not taking all our belongings back on there, the little bit that we've managed to get off. And then we lived like that for, was it four weeks, maybe five weeks, six weeks? And yes. then eventually I just said to her, you know, it's just material possessions. It's not worth a lot anyway. Let's just bring it back on. And 
if we get kicked off, we just leave it behind and that's it. So then we, we try to go and live normally again. When they put us back on the farm, they then evicted all those people that had come and put up their structures. And we went back to some sort of semblance of normalcy for approximately 18 months. So back to cropping, back to expanding. And because we've been told by a local MP, I must carry on investing and <laughs> doing what I'd normally do. So we carried on farming as per normal for another 18 months to two years. Yep. And then another wave of nonsense. You know, they moved away from us and they went and spent the energy on other farmers. So we had about 18 months grace period of no pressure or less pressure. And then <laughs> two years later, it all started all over again. Just to cut a story short, is then we got evicted permanently. But by then, my uh, Australian application had come through. Yes. So the timing was perfect, really. So as we got kicked off the one, we'd just been accepted into Australia, on the other hand. Okay, so in what year did you arrive in Australia? Uh, December 2004. Was that in Sydney? No, so we moved to the Sunshine Coast. Sunshine Coast. About an hour north of Brisbane, yeah. Oh, well, that's paradise. It is paradise, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you still live there today, aren't you? Yeah, we yeah. haven't moved. Okay. Beautiful. I actually flew out of Zimbabwe about a month, six weeks before Marin and the kids. Yep. And I had a friend of a friend that I said that was involved in property. We'd done some property dabbling back in Africa. Yep. I enjoyed the property and the property investment and development and so forth. Straight away, I got off the plane and went straight to the TAFE in Brisbane and did my real estate license. Mm-hmm. You know, the selling license and then the full principal's license. And then basically got into a real estate business to fulfill our visa because we had a certain time period and certain criteria we needed to fulfill our visa to be allowed to stay in Australia. Yeah, you had to invest money here. Yeah, you had to invest. You had to buy a business of a certain turnover. Yeah. You know, a couple of criteria depending on the visa you came in on. Yes. And yeah, then we basically got stuck into real estate. Marin arrived about four to six weeks later with the kids. I think they were eight. Two, five, and seven at the time. Okay. Rented Jeez. a house here from the Sunshine Coast. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been here ever since. <laughs> okay, so I also heard that in 2011, things didn't go very well for you in the uh, investment or in the building industry. Yeah, uh, so what happened was, as soon as we qualified our business visa, the requirements for residency and citizenship, we sold the real estate office. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, while I had the real estate office, I got involved with two business partners in property development, mm-hmm. and that was much more up my alley than the actual real estate office. And we did development all over the place, and things were going really, really well. We did a big development down in Sydney, which was 300 storage units and 590 boat storage units. Wow. Down in Sydney, we did it for two brothers. We were third-party investors, property managers, equity partners. We'd been given a big legal contract by the bank, and I won't tell you which bank, that they were going to refinance us out of the property deal once it was completed. Yep. So we kept our side of the bargain. And you must recall back in 2010, 9, 10, 11, with the GFC blowing through here and the banks were tightening up on credit and so forth, they suddenly turned around, the bank that is, and said they're no longer going to refinance us out of this deal. <laughs> Wow. We still had large interest payments, obviously. You can imagine that scale of development. Yep. There's a lot of interest involved. Mm-hmm. So we brought the project to fruition. We've got a major storage company 
in there with their management and their software, and they take a cut of you know anybody leasing the units and so forth. So there's rental income coming in. It was a standalone asset, and the idea was refinance us out. We get our money back out. We get our profits and so forth, and we move on to the next development. Then the banks reneged on their part of the deal. As soon as they did that, the two brothers that we've been doing the investments for, they put themselves into voluntary administration. And then it became a long process of, you know, we went and saw barristers and et cetera, et cetera, yep. to determine where we stand and how we you know, unwind this thing. And basically they said we've got a 99.999%. We'll win the case. It's going to take two to four years to come to court. It's going to cost three to $500,000 in legal fees. And when you win judgment in two to four years' time, you still got to get money out of these people. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we flew all around the world at the time. One of our business partners did anyway to try and find an investor or investors or another bank or an investment company or equity firm, somebody to take over the asset and refinance us out. Yeah. And none of that was happening. And the banks very abruptly and suddenly put the asset to auction, got sold off. Obviously, we lost all our oh investment, God. et cetera, et cetera. Remember, we all had our own personal overheads at the time, so I had to find a job pretty quickly, and the quickest way to get a big salary was to go and work on the mines. So that's what happened in August 2011. I ended up you know, getting a job on the mines. Yep. So one minute we were, thought we were flying high, and the next minute we were back to square one again, to put it basically. Yeah, okay, So you, and you worked in the mines until what year? I worked in the mines for three years. And the mines, you're talking about Western Australia? So I was flying from Queensland to Western Australia every week. Yep. Oh, my goodness. And the whole family still stayed here, and you would just go back and forth every three weeks? Yeah. So I had a rush to and one rush to, so two weeks away and one week home. And yep. I spent two days flying, obviously. So it was 16 and five days, basically. Right. I see. But, you know, I was thankful for the work at the time. covered all our overheads. But it wasn't good for family life. It was not good for a relationship. disrupted our whole family. So Yeah, I understand. What happened then? In 2013, you stopped? So, so what actually happened then, I started getting sick on the mines. I've been somebody that exercises and eats well my whole life. And suddenly, over a period of 12 months, I started waking up with a certain condition. And I went and tried the traditional medical route for a period of about 12 months, and nothing was working. Yes. But I knew something was wrong. What happened then was my next-door neighbor had been doing a nutritional cleansing program. And he came across one day and he just said, well, why don't you try this program? You know, I was skeptical, obviously. I said, look, I'm an ex-farmer. We eat well. We exercise. And he just asked me one question, and that was, is what you're doing working for you? I said, no. I said, well, give it a crack. So I did. Yep. Within a week, I knew something had changed. I just thought it was temporary relief. You know, a week later, I still didn't have the condition. A week later, you know, seven years ago. So whatever condition I'd picked up, I'd through nutrition, managed to cleanse my body of whatever the problem was. Had fantastic results. Maren had done the program with me to yes. support. She had a fantastic result. And as soon as we had had those results, people noticed our changes in us, not just physically weight loss, but energy, the positivity, the different you know, glow in your eyes and your face. And that gave us hope that here was something we could probably pursue as a business because we didn't have any capital you know, to, to buy another real estate office or another business. Yes. And here, for a few hundred dollars, we had the potential to start another business. And so that's basically what happened. As people noticed our transformation, we started sharing that program with them. And then it transpired it was a network marketing business. So 
Warren had done a lot of due diligence in the past and found that many, many direct selling companies or network marketing companies, you put in a lot of work but not necessarily get compensated for it. Yes. There was something different with this particular compensation plan and the company. And she did her homework, got hold of a friend that had been in that particular business for a few years. And the friend just said, look, it's better than what you think it is. Okay. And once we got our head around the company and the products and the management, the science behind the products and then the compensation plan, and we had all these people naturally just asking us what we were doing from a health perspective. And as we started sharing the system with them, so we started getting paid. And when we got our first check, $308, <laughs> yes. that's the day Myron called me on the mine and said, this is the way we're going to get you out of the mine. Okay, so you were still going back and forth to the mines while you started this yeah. new business? Absolutely, yeah. So. yeah. Stephen and I were both still working full-time. I was running the HR and admin for two brothers that owned seven subways here on the coast. So we were both working full-time and when we started with our network marketing business. Yes. And, but we realized that this, you know, this is the way that we could, if we just put in the effort and spend our time on building this business, you know, that we could eventually get Stephen back here, which was our main aim at that stage. And so we did that. We ran it as our second business, as a part-time business after ours. I think this is a big difference between, because network marketing has become such a popular thing in the last, say, six, seven years. And I think one of the things that made it so different is that we really took it seriously. We've always been in business, even back in Zimbabwe, which we didn't really talk about, but I had a couple of my own businesses that I started over there. So I've always had a business mind. I've always had a business background. And I just knew that if we treated this like a business and put in the effort that, that we could really make something of it. Yep. So uh, we did. When the kids are in bed at night, that's when I would spend my time connecting with people and, you know, doing whatever I needed to do. And Stephen did exactly the same on the mind, talking to people over there. And then when he did come home for his R&R, instead of sitting around and, you know, just relaxing, yeah. which he probably would wanted to do, we were actually getting out there, doing presentations, talking to people, really actively building our business. Okay. So, so it was 12 months after we got started. That's um, what I wanted to talk about. There's two things really now I'm, I'm, I'm really would like to focus on. One is the mindset you guys have because there's a lot of people going through ups and downs and they don't have that mindset and I think it would be great to share. But let's, let's start first with the uh, two or three words that you said, which is take the business seriously. So you, you gave yourself a plan, you had a number of presentations you wanted to do every week, or did you decide that, no, we're going to get to a level where we can have a check coming in on a regular basis? To take it even back a little bit further, I think the first thing is that I always say, you know, if you've got a reason for doing something, it'll drive you. In business terms, they always talk about your why. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah. And our why was to get Stephen home, because well, we've just been married 27 years. So at that stage, we were probably married 20 years. Yes. And I can honestly say for two people who never really had serious issues in their marriage, this living apart thing, it really, really wasn't working for us. I know for a lot of people it does work, but in our family, it just didn't work. Right. So our why, our reason for get, trying to get Stephen home was massive. Mm. And we were prepared to sacrifice in the short term anything in order to bring him home. Right. And I think that was the biggest thing is we knew we had to sacrifice for a year, our nights, our weekends, the time he was at home, holidays. We were prepared to do that sacrifice. I think that was the biggest thing is because we had such a big reason that we wanted to get Stephen home. 
Now, I just want to ask, ask you something because you guys have been in real estate, right? So why wouldn't Stephen have stayed home and get involved into real estate sales because the sky's the limit in terms of income as well and it wouldn't have to be far away from the family? I think because we need, we had a lot of expenses at the time. We had a lot of mortgages going. We had a lot of investment houses. We had investors that needed to be paid. There was just a lot of expenses that we needed to cover. Yep. And we needed the money quickly, yeah. And I think that was why at that stage it was just the easiest. You've got to remember, we're talking to DFC yet. People weren't buying. Everyone was extremely skeptical of the property market, especially at that stage. Right. And, you know, no one was really investing or buying. You know, there was a lot of fear going on for, for most people yes. around the economy worldwide, what was going on. And everyone was just really sitting tight, I think. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. So your big why made you take that second part-time business like very seriously because that was a, a way out. And so how long did it take before you decided that's it? He can now cut the ties from the mines. Well, it was a year. It was exactly a year, actually, that um, after we got started, that Stephen came home. Wow. Because that's when we realized that our business was now at a stage where two months after Stephen got home, yes. we had replaced completely his income. Wow. So, well, and mine, but basically we, we then earned enough money to be earning when we were working away or working for other people. Okay. So that's when we started doing it full time. Yeah, we both resigned and we did it full time. Wow. <laughs> this is yeah, amazing. I know I should be asking for the name, but not yet. All right. I just want to keep this in suspense. <laughs> so you, the two of you now are back together working this full time. And that's since 2014, I'd say. Yeah, so we started in 2013 and then from April, May 2014, that's when we went full-time at home, yeah. Okay, and today it's still what you're doing, like full-time? Yes, that's what we're still doing. I think the big thing with network marketing is that very few people actually understand what this business model is about. Yes. And there's two main things that you get from network marketing. The one is that you create leveraged income. So you're not doing all the work. It's the whole team leverage off each other. Yes. So let's just say for argument's sake, if Stephen and I were away for a week or two weeks somewhere where we don't have internet access, our team is still building in that time. So we're not closing the doors of our business. Our business is still operating mm -hmm. and we're still getting an income. The other thing that is so powerful is the residual income that we get. So, you know, residual income is that income where you do the work first. So like a lot of people, if they write a really good book, you know, and they publish it, they will get royalties on that book forever after. And I know the book that we love using is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Because that book got written in 1969, and it's a children's book, and that book is worldwide. And every time that book gets sold, the original author of that book or his family these days yep. will get a copy of that book. So that is residual income. And we actually get residual income with this business. So even if Stephen and I didn't enroll a single person this week, we're still earning money every single week on the work that we've done before. Right. It is extremely powerful once you understand just how powerful this business model is. Okay. So now let, let's tell them the name of that network marketing you work with. Yes, we decided to partner with Isogenics. Yes, okay. And the reason we decided to partner with Isogenics is because we've always taken our health really seriously and our health has been really important for us. And we've just decided when we saw what it did for us, that was the first thing. But the other thing was that we just found that the world right now is in dire straits. Like we have got more knowledge, more doctors, more information, 
people have more access to gyms, to trainers, to everything worldwide, yes, the world is in the biggest health crisis it's ever been. Yeah. And Isogenics is a company that produces natural products that's science-based and that helps so much. We've seen over the last seven years the impact that this company's product has had on people. Mm-hmm. And it just totally aligns you know, with what we feel and the way the world's going. People need to make changes in their health. Otherwise, we're literally going one way. And I think people are. I think people are starting to realize, you know, the way that we've been eating for the last 20, 30 years is just not working. And people are starting to take more and more serious action and responsibility to what they're actually putting into their mouth and into their bodies. So I think, yeah, that's where Isogenics really comes in. And that's why the company does so good. You know, at the end of the day, you can join a network marketing company, but if the products don't work and if the products don't actually have a physical and emotional change for people, you're just not going to make a success yeah. out of it. Yeah. So I, I think that is the key part of it is that the products have got to be leading products in order to make a success. Right. I see. So uh, is there a, a level of residual income where it stops? Like uh, after three levels down, it stops paying or, or is it continuous? So isogenics doesn't work like that. Isogenics is a binary plan. So you actually get paid unlimited debt. So it doesn't matter where people get involved, what level deep, if it's 20 levels, 30 levels, 40 levels, you'll continue to um, get paid for that. Wow. Um, so you've got different business centers. So once that first business center maxes out at $13,500 a week, that's when you'll actually get a re-entry above yourself. So not below yourself. So a lot of companies will give you a re-entry below yourself. So you really have to start all over again. With Isogenics, you actually get a re-entry above yourself. So your first business actually becomes your one binary leg. Yes. And then you only have to build a third leg, which is only a third of the work. So mm-hmm. we work on a one, three, two, three binary leg. So your two-third leg will become your whole first business center. Once that second business center matches out at 13500 you once again get a re-entry above yourself. And your first and your second business center then becomes your one binary leg, your two-third leg. So just indefinite. It just carries on and on. Well, I think um, I might just need just a podcast just for that. But let's go on to the mindset now. You have a mindset that left London uh, for Zimbabwe and and do farming. Then you have a mindset of leaving Zimbabwe in 2004. Then you have a mindset of overcoming the GFC that hit you in 2011. If I'd said, what would be three ingredients that you say made the formula for the two of you to conquer all of those shortcomings, what would they be? I can tell you right now, every time a serious thing has happened in our life, yeah. I definitely crawl into a ball and cry for a day. Don't think <laughs> that we have these steel people that just get on with it and go on. I mean, you do. It just breaks you. And, you know, you just think, oh, my word, how can we go through this again? It really does. But at the end of the day, what is the alternative? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't get up again and just keep going, what is the alternative? I mean, our background, we've obviously lived in Africa, and Africa is not a place where the governments look after you. You know, you don't have all the aid that first world countries have. We've never grown up with a mentality where a government will look after you, or we don't have to worry about it because you'll get looked after, like yep. the things like that. Yes. I mean, if something happens, okay, fine, so we cry. You know, you're emotional, you, you feel defeated, but then you've just got to get back up again. I mean, life's too short and we're too young to not get on with it again. Right. So I think that was the biggest thing is that when you don't have a choice, you just have to get up and go again. Okay. I think the other thing is just every single person has got a choice and you can choose success. You can choose happiness. You can choose positive energy. 
you, know, you can choose every single day. You've got that right to choose what you want. Yep. And as long as you're in gratitude, and we live in gratitude for what we have, yes. the focus what you've got rather than what you don't have. Live in gratitude. We are abundantly blessed, you know, just physically with our children, the fact that we're allowed to live in Australia. You know, that's already a massive plus. So focus on all the good things. When, you, when you're down, you're not down and out. You're just down. Yes. you just got skills to get back up again. And if you haven't lost your skills, you've still got those skills. you just got to put them to use. Your passion, your energy, your drive, you just got to put it to use in a new positive direction. Yes. But and look, like Maren said, what is the alternative? The alternative is sit down and just accept, you know, life's going to be like this. But that doesn't bring you happiness or joy or anything like that. You know, we've got big plans and big ideas and we're big givers and contributors. You know, the first thing we did when we got to Australia, or Maren did, was set up a charity to feed the pensioners in Zimbabwe, so the older people that had lost their farms. Wow. Set up a charity to help feed those people, together with a guy called Sean Kelly, and then later the committee that was formed. Yes. In the early days, it was feeding up to 1,000 people, six, yeah. 700 people at times a month. I think at the moment, it's down to about 300 people every single month get fed right. from the income that gets raised here in, in Australia through that charity. Wow. Not everyone's got that kind of spirit. So was that because the two of you have got that kind of synergy together that, you know, when one's down, the other one's picking up or that uh, you've gone through so, ma so much of that that you're almost immunized to negativity. You just find a way out all the time and bounce back up. Yeah, you know? I think that's yeah. I mean, we're definitely soulmates. So I think we do work very well together. Right. Some days he drives me up the wall. But most of the time, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's pretty good. But I think one thing we actually, Stephen, I don't know if Stephen actually mentioned it, but we never got compensated for our farm. So when we bought our farm, from our years that we lived in England and then from leasing the farm, initially the, the farm that we leased, yeah. we saved up enough money. We actually bought our farm cash. So we didn't have a mortgage on our farm. So when we lost that farm in 2004 yeah. and the government just took it, we didn't get compensated for it. So we actually still to this day we're sitting here with the title deeds of that farm and it legally still belongs to us. So we left Zimbabwe and came to Australia, you know, not with a lot of money, purely because our biggest assets we didn't get paid for. Yes. So we had to start over. And I, and I think it's just that we've always just had drive. We just want more out of life. And when I say that, you know, we, you want success, but for us success, Believe it or not, it's not materialistic things because I think losing that farm taught us a lot. Well, first of all, we lived in a third world country where materialistic things weren't big. Like everyone drove the same cars and we lived in the same houses and things like that. But the biggest thing I think it taught me was just how important our family was because there were farmers that got killed over there. You know, women got raped and really bad things happened. And we were very grateful that we got out of there basically unharmed. Yes. So for us today, our wealth is in terms of having time. So we have the time to decide every day how we want to spend our day. We have the time to be with our family. Like our family is our first priority. Our three children is our first priority. Yes. We have the time to travel. Stephen and I, one of our biggest passions, that's why we left for the UK when we were 23 years old, is we love traveling. You yes. know, we, we love seeing the world. And that's one of the things we are actually off in 10 days' time on an eight-month trip where we're going to be working location-free around the world. So yep. that is the things that drive us, and that's the thing that we want. So I think it's just that we don't give up, do we? I don't know. Maybe we do want more out of life than the average person. We, we're not prepared to settle. 
you know, I'm not prepared to settle to work the nine to five. I don't think we've ever really wanted, other than those three years that team was in the mind, that our lifetime was really thrown in turmoil. We've pretty much worked for ourselves since the age of about 27 years old. So kind of become a little bit unemployable and you just realize that there's more, there's more out there. Yes. And what do they always say? You either build your own wealth or you build someone else's wealth. And I'd rather be building my own than someone else's. So <laughs> it's just a choice to believe, to, yeah. Yeah, to do it for ourselves. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, within the next few days, you guys traveling, aren't you? Yes. So we off early March, we'll start off with three months in Europe and then we'll spend five months in Africa. Three months in Europe? What are you doing in Europe? Well, the business, like Mara said, it's just going to be location-free. So instead of working, as we do at the moment, from uh -huh. the Sunshine Coast, yes, you take your laptop and your phone with you and you do exactly what we would have done here. We're just going to do through Europe. You still hold presentations. You still meet people over there that want better health because it's online and it's global and it's a leveraged income. It doesn't matter where you're sitting. So we could be sitting in England or Ireland or yep. Jersey or Spain. It doesn't really matter. There's still people there that are looking for better health or looking to make some extra income on the side, you know, a little side business like we've done. Yes. So, I mean, there's so many people worldwide. So just location-free, that's all it is. It's not as though we're going on a holiday. Part of it will be travel and holiday, obviously, but a large part of it will just be working just from a different environment. Yeah, and which is the same thing when you're going to go and spend five months in South Africa. Yeah, so there the product is not in, in Africa, so we can't market it there. But because we're online, we still have the ability to connect with people all over the world and market yeah. to them yes. online. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe that your three children are also in isogenics. Not the youngest one. So the two older ones started off. They've got other um, work as well. So that for them, it's really just very much part-time at this stage. And um, they're pretty young still. So yes. I think the, the health thing is not as big a deal for them just right now. But yeah, they've still got the accounts going. They use the product every day and their plan is to continue building and to carry on with it. Right, I see. Wow. <laughs> I thought I was just going to talk to like some farmers who live in Zimbabwe because they were persecuted. You guys are actually entrepreneurs. No, we, 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 we are, are just farmers. farmers. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to one of your previous questions. Yes. If you want to make an impact on the world or on other people, right? Yes. You need money to do that. You need cash to do that. You need to have a money mindset. Yes. When you get knocked down, you can stay down. But what impact have you got when you're down? You can't have an impact on people around you. You can't make a difference. Make a difference. You can't give to charity or to the church or to help somebody else with their weight loss or their energy or make a little bit of extra money to go and see family they haven't seen in 10 years. I mean, yes. there's nothing more rewarding than giving. We're natural givers because we grew up in a community where you had to look after each other. Yes. And there's nothing more rewarding when somebody comes to you and says, you know, I haven't flown home. I'm an immigrant. I'm working two jobs. I haven't seen my parents in 10 years. And you show them a way to get their health back. And in the process, they make a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars to afford that ticket. How do you put value on that? You know, that's priceless when you can have that sort of impact. Yes, you're actually changing lives. You're freeing them. You're giving them time. Yeah, and you're just opening people's minds up. You know, I've got two degrees from university. Maren's got a degree. I've got endless diplomas and certificates you know, and all that stuff because that's how we were brought up in the time. You know, in the 80s, 90s was get a good education. Yes. This is fantastic. I'm so glad I went to university. And then go and get a job. But like Maren's parents, their vintage, you'd get one job and you'd probably stay in that job for 30, 40 years and then you'd die. Yep. You know, this, I read the other day, there's a statistic, I think every five or six years, people are changing jobs. So, 
the whole dynamics change and to try and unwind generations of conditioning of how a certain thing should be done and how a business should be run. You know, that's a process in and of itself is that there is this thing called the internet now. There is this thing called Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and Instagram and and it doesn't matter what age you are, are you prepared to be open-minded to have a different way of earning an income? I mean, yes. why should you have to drive an hour and a half every day in the traffic or sit on the train to get to the center of the CBD? Why can't you do whatever you need to do from home or from a cafe or from a coffee shop? And technology is allowing us to do that. It educate people on what's available out there technology-wise and how you can now do business with low capital input, without the traditional overhead, it's possible if you're open-minded and you're coachable and you've got a strong work ethic and you're passionate and you're energetic and you want to make a difference and, you know, all those things, anything's possible for anyone at any point in time. You just choose. Yeah. Oh, well, I think um, your story is actually a story of people who just uh, confronted every kind of problems but still kept an amazing mindset. And I think that I didn't have the time today really to explore. That would be something that really would love to explore because that's not a God-given mindset, you know? Some people say they were born like this. I, I probably would say that the two of you have got a little bit of that in you. Uh, some people would say, no, the why, what Marin was saying, the why was enough. Like, the why makes you change. The why makes you embrace adversity and look for the silver lining and i think that you've got that guys and it's amazing thing that um you've shared today listen it's been great talking to you i'm sure i i would love to um talk to you some more because i think there's so much that you guys have got that maybe uh, should be shared unfortunately one hour is not enough to just go through the story that i would say your story is a bit like the silver stallone story You've gone through the uh, abyss of the dumpster, but seriously, you guys now not only are in control of your life, but you're also doing a lot of good things around you. That's fantastic. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank, and thank you, you very much for this and enjoy your holiday. Thank you. It's work. It's work. <laughs> oh, it's work. No, no, it's holiday. Thank you so much. We talk soon. All right. Thank, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.